want to do a Christmas series, and I want to take uh, the approach of looking backstage at Christmas. I know we generally have Christmas programs and things that we attend at schools and things of that nature, and any of you that have ever participated in those knows that on the front is all beautiful. It's in the backstage that everything is cluttered and where things are stuffed, and, and there are some things in Scripture that I believe give us some insight into the things that we celebrate that I would love to spend a, a period of weeks just looking at some verses that help us understand what this season is all about. And so this series is going to be called Backstage for Christmas, and today's message is when, what, and why. And I'm going to encourage you, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. I'm, I'm not going to be able to get out of chapter or verse 4 and 5 today. Those are going to be the theme, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And I'm reading this out of the New King James Version this morning. And the Scripture says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Father, there is massive amount of meaning that's wrapped up in these few words. And I'm asking for your help. Would you send the anointing of the Holy Spirit to help unlock truths that your word would literally explode in life and meaning to each and every one of us? And that when it does, Lord, that you would give us the courage to respond to the prompting of your Holy Spirit in such a way that brings honor to you and that brings growth to our life. So help us, I pray, frame this season that we are about to enter into with these verses. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a country where I believe that for the most part, people have an idea that they believe that they know what the Christmas season is all about. You know, I am coming to a place where I believe that it is becoming more and more of a mystery to even our culture that we live in. I, I think that um, we tend to believe that everybody sees the Christmas message the way that we do, and it's very familiar. But I've discovered in conversations with people, and perhaps you've experienced this as well, that there are a lot of people that are confused about who Jesus was. There's a lot of people that are confused about who he claimed to be, and they're certainly unsure if you were to ask them, can you, can you tell me why it was you believed that Jesus lived, and more importantly, can you explain to me why it was that he died? And we're entering into an age, even in our culture, where people will have a hard time explaining that. One of the researchers said the best way to find out what's going on in homes is to ask school children because the children will hear their moms and dads talking and begin to draw certain beliefs based on that. So one of the researchers asked school children, and he said, can you tell me, who do you think Jesus is? And one of the school children said, he's the one that took from the rich and gave to the poor. In other words, this school child got Jesus and the disciples mixed up with Robin Hood and his merry men. So they moved on to another child, and they said, can you tell us, in your view, based on what you hear in your home, what a Christian is? And one of the children said, aren't they the people who grow vegetables? So even in the culture in which we live, even though we think everybody knows about Jesus, we are growing to become more and more of a Jesus-ignorant culture. 
And I believe that it's a reminder for us that the message may not be as clear in the minds of our friends and family as we think it is or in the minds of our colleagues, and maybe it's because we haven't done a very good job of articulating it in the way that we live and think. How many of you were ever in English class or in a journalism class? Can I just see your hands? How many of you in those classes were taught that if you were going to write an article, it needed to include the who, what, when, where, how? Any of you remember those things? You were great students. We are going to approach this particular passage of Scripture today with three of those questions, the when, the what, and the why. And I say that this morning because I believe that there's some things that God wants to show us from behind the scenes that will help us appreciate the season even more than we do and give us a greater insight into how much we are loved and how much God desires to be in a relationship with you. The first question I want to answer today is the when. If you will look at your Bibles or if you will look at the passage that we just read in whatever version you may have, and you look at the words, it actually asks this question when it starts. It says, when the fullness of time had come. It gives us an idea, the way that it is written, as if the best way to describe it for us would be as if you are watching a bathtub that is filling up, and it's getting near the top, and it's coming to the place where you recognize that some intervention is going to be necessary before it begins to be disastrous. That would be the thought behind this as it gets there. In the fullness of time, intervention was going to need to take place. And Paul is referencing here the moment that was determined by God's eternal decree that that little phrase, when the fullness of time had come, God decided to intervene at that very moment. It's interesting because Paul talks a lot about the timing of God and is convinced that the issues of timing are under God's control, and it's therefore no surprise that even the coming of Christ was regarded by Paul as something that was under the divine control of the Father. When the fullness of time had come, God was going to act. And so we have the idea, and if you want to jot this down, you can, that the eternal God stands outside of time and yet invades time in the person of his son, Jesus. Let me repeat that. The eternal God stands outside of time and yet invades time in the person of his son, Jesus. Now, time, of course, is an issue for all of us. We recognize that because we wear watches. We have smartphones that constantly tell us the time. We have alarm clocks. You're making sure that I have a clock that works on the back wall so that when you're hungry, you know, I'm going to let you out in time so that you can all eat. And so we know that time slips away quickly. In fact, for you music lovers, particularly those of you who are of my generation, you will remember a song by Jim Croce that says, if I could save time in a bottle. Any of you remember that song? A few of you do remember that. There was another group that was about the same time, and their name was Chicago. Now, Chicago spent a fair amount of time trying to answer the question, does anybody really know what time it is? How many of you know that song? You heathen. God addresses in Scripture time very purposefully. He had determined the time and when that time had fully come. But anybody that is reading the story of Christmas as you get there, you might be tempted to say, well, isn't that a rather strange time for Jesus to come? Or 
Wasn't there perhaps a better place or a better time that he could come? Why did he determine that time and that place? I believe that just a little bit of a historical context will give us some insight, maybe not into the why, but at least give us an idea of perhaps what took place at this time. Palestine at this particular moment in time was actually not a very strange place for this to happen because at this time, if you were to take a world map, you would uniquely position Palestine in the middle where the gospel could go to Asia and into Africa and into Europe from there. In fact, as you looked at a map, you might interestingly say this was a great place for this to happen so that they could start a worldwide movement. And the time is interesting because there were some things that were going on in the world at that particular moment that would lend itself to believing that God would say, this is the fullness of time. Number one, there was an air of expectancy that was going on in the world, particularly in the Jewish world, because the Jews were looking for a Messiah. There was a level of security that had taken place in the world that was largely the result of the impact of the Roman Empire that had established a level of peace and security. From there, they had begun to build roadways so the possible movement of people that would take a message was becoming more and more possible. Then there was clarity that was happening. Interesting enough, the Greek language was being accepted more and more worldwide. More people were understanding it. So the ability to communicate a message that would be transported from here to there was beginning to take place as national and ethical boundaries began to fall. And then, interesting enough, there was the spiritual futility of the time. The old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were beginning to lose their hold. People were beginning to doubt whether these gods could actually do anything. And in their search for meaning and significance and purpose, they were looking beyond themselves and beyond the old gods that they had grown up with, looking for a kind of religious experience that was both real and satisfying. Now, these are all external factors that are not a part of the main issue, but they're not irrelevant as to why God may have chosen that time to be the fullness of time. But when we look at the actual issue, we don't want to do so away from the context of what God has written in his Bible. And so I don't want to launch out of that, but I do want you to do some homework this week. Much of what takes place in Galatians 4 is set up for you in the third chapter of Galatians. And it centers around three historical figures. The first is the figure of Abraham. He's told that God gave Abraham a promise that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And you need to understand that historical fact. Then there is the inferred reaction and interaction with the figure of Moses where God gave Moses the law, which he intended when the law was given that it would reveal sin, which would in turn then draw men and women to the Lord Jesus. And lastly, in the third chapter, we see the figure of Jesus Christ presented here as the one who would end the law, who by his life, his birth, and his death would silence the law's condemnation. But what has become apparent is instead of having the law serve its purpose as an avenue by which people would recognize their need of a Savior, the law was now bringing people to despair. 
They were hopeless. They were helpless. Now, if you think about that in contemporary terms in which we live today, this is the way it would look because it's not difficult for us to understand. There are many religious people who are devout in their interests concerning God and their expressions of religious intent are honest. But if you were to ask them in their pursuit of religion, in their pursuit of a religious life, if it has brought anything to them of value, they would need to honestly begin to tell you, you know what? Though I am a religious person, my religion does not bring me forgiveness. My religion does not bring me a sense that I'm forgiven. If you were to ask them that in their pursuit of religion, they would tell you that they do not have a sense of security of where they stand with God, even though they are devout. If you were to ask them that their religion brings them any peace, they would tell you, I have no lasting peace even though I pursue religion with all of my heart. And they would also honestly tell you that there seems to be no sense of hope of a secure future with God because of their religion. Not because they are not engaged in religious pursuit, because they're very zealous in these things, but as they confront themselves again and again by the rules and the regulation, it leaves them feeling sad and hopeless and empty and despairing because the more they are confronted by the standards of righteousness, the more they are aware that they cannot and do not meet those standards and have no hope to get there on their own. And unless somebody comes to say, that this law that they were given is not to be used as a ladder to see how close I can get to God, but the law was given as a mirror so that we can look at ourselves in light of the law and then see the smudges of sin and the rebellion on our faces, thereby saying to ourselves, if this simply shows my smudges, and my sin, and my inconsistencies, and I cannot wash myself in this mirror, then where do I go to be washed? If that's what happens, then the law fulfills its purpose because the law was to send men and women to seek Jesus and find his wonderful provision. We recognize that there are a number of people in our world today that believe I can earn my way to heaven. I can climb the law. I can do the right things. I can say the right things. In fact, we are confronted in Matthew chapter 19 with an interaction between Jesus and a man that we're known as the rich young ruler. And didn't he say to Jesus, Jesus, you know, he's saying, there's something that is lacking in my life. And Jesus says, then keep the law, keep the commandments. And he said to them, I have done that since I was a child. In other words, I recognize that the law was not the way to God. It just shows me that there's an emptiness there. And if it had the ability to do that, I would have done that. And we have so many that are caught up in that. I can't think of a more frustrating or futile exercise than a religious experience that depends entirely upon my own endeavors to make myself acceptable to God and to keep myself acceptable to God. But we live in a world where people every day of the week will attend church and have no idea of what is actually happening, which is why in the fullness of time, God said, I will intervene. That leads us to the what question. 
From the when we go quickly to the what, and when the fullness of time has come, the Scripture says to us, tells us in this phrase, God sent His Son. Now, Paul does not go into a detailed work here of the doctrine of incarnation. But in the phraseology he uses, there is a Greek word that is given to us that really begins to explain some things that we need to understand. It's expestalintion. It means it's sending something out from a previous state. This is important for us at Christmas to know. What Paul is saying here is you need to understand that Jesus did not just show up. He has always been. He's being sent from one state to another state. He's taking on a new form. Therefore, when we have kids that come to us and say, hey, mom and dad, where was I before I was born? We look at them and say, you did not exist. You weren't even a twinkle in mom and dad's eye. We cannot say that about Jesus because Jesus existed previously before he was ever born. So we have Jesus being interrogated in John chapter 19 by Pilate. And interesting enough, Pilate looks at him and he begins to ask him this question. And he says, where did you come from? And we look at that and oftentimes I think we miss the full meaning of that because it says Jesus didn't say anything. I believe that the reason he didn't say anything is because Jesus is looking at Pilate going, if I started to tell you where I came from, it would be more than your mind can comprehend. We do not have the time, and this is not the context for me to begin to explain to you who I am, where I've been, what I've done, and the fact that your very breath depends upon my thought process. He would never have been able to grasp it. So this phrase speaks to us that Jesus existed without ceasing to be what he was, namely God. He became what he was not, namely man. Let me repeat that. Without ceasing to be what he was, namely God, he became what he was not, namely man. Now, you can cross-reference this in many different places, but John chapter 1 is as good as as any. In fact, next week I probably am going to uh, preach out of this passage. But it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning logos, And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. In other words, he was the creator. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Therefore, Jesus being sent by God was not created. He was uncreated. So what we have is a pre-existing son... You have a Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together in eternity, entering into a covenant with one another and determining that the Son will fulfill the obligations laid upon him by the Father, and he will do so when the fullness of time has come. Now, when you get to the Christmas carols, by the way, how many of you are already listening to Christmas music? Love it. So many of the Christmas carol writers get this sometimes way better than we do. But we have a phraseology in one of the songs that says this, Lo, within the manger lies he who built the starry skies. In other words, they understood there's a baby that just arrived here, but this baby's always existed and is the creator of everything. You couldn't say that about any other individual in the whole world or throughout history. So what has God done? God has sent his son. 
And even though Paul does not give this a detailed treatment of the incarnation, and we will get to that later on, it does give us an understanding that he is showing that Jesus is perfectly qualified to do what the Father required of him to do. It's, his purpose here is showing that Jesus is the only one uniquely qualified to fulfill the obligation of what is needed for you and I. Now, if the first phrase, God sent forth his son, speaks to the deity of Jesus, the fact that he has always been, then the second phrase that we look at here when it says, born of a woman, turns the page on that and gives us a view from the other side. Because if the deity is God sent his son, then born of a woman speaks of his humanity. And here's the great mystery. God himself choosing to enter the world through the birth canal of a virgin woman who arrives after her labor pains, perhaps with a head that's a little misshapen. And he begins to cry and to weep as God chose to send himself completely in the form of a human being. And Jesus is God with us. That means that all that God is in human form, and everything that man is apart from sin. Sent forth his son, the preexistent son, he's divine. Born of a woman, human. And notice then it says thirdly that he's born under the law. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means, number one, he had a Jewish mother. It means he was born into a Jewish nation, that he was subject to Jewish law. And furthermore that he succeeded where no one else had and where no one else would. Not only did Jesus fulfill the precepts of the law as our representative, but he exhausted the penalty of the law as our substitute. Let that sink in. You see, keeping the law perfectly in perfect righteousness was something you and I and no other human being on the face of the earth could ever attain. Interesting enough, when we talk about the obedience of Jesus, our mind goes back to his water baptism. You'll remember when he came and made the request, I need you to baptize me, and the disciples said, oh, no, 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 this is all wrong. I need to be baptized of you. And Jesus says to him, I need you to do this to fulfill everything that is proper. In other words, I recognize that in my life of perfect righteousness, this needs to be done in order to qualify me for what needs to be done later. He says, I have to do everything in the right aspect. And then you look a little bit farther down the line in his life, and when his accusers came to make up charges against Jesus at the time of his crucifixion, Jesus, unlike any other man or woman who has ever lived, turned to them to say, what sins do you accuse me of? And what is it that I have done? And these accusers had to turn with their heads bowed and walk away because he had perfectly fulfilled the law. And we look at this from our perspective of backstage at Christmas and we begin to think, if God demands total righteousness, what hope do I ever have of being accepted by God? Unless I have in Christ the one who was sent forth from God, born of a woman, born under the law, keeping the precepts 
of the law as my representative and bearing the penalty of the law as my substitute, which leads us to understand that by his divinity, by his humanity, and by his righteousness, Jesus was uniquely qualified to accomplish the purpose of God when the time was ready to be fulfilled. And the reason that Christians would assert that Jesus is the only answer is not that we want to be arrogant. It's not that we look at the religions of the rest of the world and tell them that we are better than you. We say that Jesus is the only answer because we understand that Jesus himself attested that he would be the only Savior. He's the only one that was qualified to be the Savior. You see, if God must save, then the Savior must be God. If man must bear the punishment because man sinned, then the Savior must be man. And if the man who bears the punishment for sin must himself be sinless, then who else meets the qualifications other than Jesus Christ? And any Christmas that misses this point misses everything. And we get caught up in the commercialism. And we get sentimental. We can proceed unabated in all of our activities and never capture that what was going on behind the scenes is that God recognized we were helpless and we were hopeless and there's no avenue by which we could be saved if he did not in the fullness of time send his son, fully God, born of a woman, fully human, and fulfill the law. And we look at this and frankly, folks, it's either true or it's false. It's either right or it's wrong. Because if indeed Jesus is Lord and we acknowledge his identity as the living God and the ascended king, then we have no right as his disciples to tamper with what he told us. We have no right to change the rules that he sent to us. And we have no freedom to believe anything else other than what he told us to believe. Because when in the fullness of time had come, what God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, then why? Two words, redemption and adoption. Redemption and adoption. Some of you that are sitting here today and some of you that are watching online, you know adoption firsthand because you've lived it as adopted children some of you know it because you have adopted children. And you know that the moment a child is adopted, that that whole child's status changes forever. The moment that that form is signed, from that moment a transaction is made and a child's status is irrevocably transformed. If it is a boy, he gets a new name. He's absorbed into a new family. And we're going to name that boy Jonathan. And Jonathan comes home, and the parents show him his new house and walk him to his new bedroom. And Jonathan stands there and feels strange in a new house and feels strange that he's being provided with a new bedroom because it is something that is new to him. It's strange to him that he's been adopted as a member of the family even though the legality of what has taken place was conferred upon him and he's got a new name and a new place Adoption doesn't really exist for him experientially yet because it is so unfamiliar. 
But Jonathan's parents are longing for that day when something will happen that will settle it in his own heart and he can turn to them and not just see them as legally his guardians, but see them as mom and dad. And now the same thing is true in our spiritual adoption because when we are adopted into the family of God, he confers upon us a legal status. Our adoption does not change our character It changes our status. We legally have been purchased and legally have given ourselves to the process by which we become saved. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there are immediate changes to our experience. And that same experience of a child in terms of a physical adoption will concur with the experience of growing comfortable with it and understanding what it means to be spiritually adopted. Let me explain this to you by observation. There was a missionary couple that went to a land to serve, and there they fell in love with a little girl that was an orphan, lovely girl. They took her to to their home. They gave her a bedroom. They fed her meals after adopting her. They began to teach her the rules of the family and how we live how we behave as a family, how we interact with one another. And that's how it went. Even though the parents had the papers in their pocket legally saying that she was their daughter, she was learning to learn. She was learning to live as a family member. Mom and dad waiting for that moment in time when something would happen that would take her from the legal experience into the experiential aspect of being a part of the family. The father tells the story that One morning, as he was sitting there in the kitchen, he hears down the hallway the voice of this little girl yelling, Daddy, I need a new shoelace. And he recognized that for the first time in this relationship, she had moved from the legal into the experiential. She had moved from something that had taken place on paper to something that had taken place in her heart. And she was absorbed, and adoption meant something to her. I want you to know, church, that as we enter into this season, our Father is not content, as it were, to walk around with your adoption papers in his pocket. He's not content to have us just walk around with legally knowing that Jesus was sent so that we could be part of the family, but that we have been encouraged to enter into the experience of being part of the family, the joy of being able to say, Dad, I need your help today because my shoelace is broke. Abba, Father, I need healing in my body today. Oh, God, I don't know what to do. Can you help me with the directions of the work that I've got to do? And leaving just the legal transaction of what Jesus has done into the experiential as the Holy Spirit himself takes up residence within each of our hearts. Why, in the fullness of time, did God come and send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we could be adopted and that we could live in the joy of the family of God, not having to worry about climbing a ladder of righteousness, but knowing that Jesus did all of that for us so that we could walk in the joy 
of saying, Abba, Father, I love you. Worship team, if you please come. You see, the Christian life is not just some legal transaction. If that's all it is in your life, then my friend, I pray that you come to know God in an experiential way. He loves you. He desires you. He's not in the business of adopting people just so that you can sit on the outside looking in. He's in the process of adopting you so that you can become a joint heir. So this wonderful story of Christmas is about Christ redeeming people from their sins by paying for a debt that they could not pay, by taking on himself the curse of the law so that we could be redeemed and adopted into the family. There's a hymn writer that puts it so well, and some of you may recognize the words to this. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood. To every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And give him the glory. Great things he has done. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem us.